Welcome fans, teachers, and fans of teachers. Do you love a great story? I sure do. I have made it my life's work to tell stories that help people to learn and laugh. I'm your host, Kristen Murphy, a small town veteran teacher who loves to share stories with children and adults that inspire, teach, entertain, and just plain make us all better people. I'm so happy that you're pairing up with me today on Think, Pair, Teacher, Share. Let the stories begin. Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining me today for the fourth episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share. It has been a while since the last episode, so I want to thank you for your patience. Just like the aging of fine wine, I hope that the pause between episode three and four will have been sufficiently long to produce a really fine episode. (laughs) Seriously, if you're so moved by today's episode, please consider sharing it on other onto other teachers and fans of teachers. And as usual, I'm so happy that you're along for the ride today. Today, I'm excited to share some stories and a book or two with you, this time about how humans are social animals, about how we can all benefit from knowing how and why we are born to connect and align with others, and how teachers can use that research about how we're all connected to improve their teaching. Interestingly enough, it isn't just our friends that affect us, but also our friends' friends, and even our friends' friends' friends, who have at least some say in how we go about our daily lives. What? You're likely saying. So let me explain. As I've mentioned ad nauseum before, I do love a good research study because, well, who doesn't? Today, I will tell you about the most recent book, which I've not been able to put down. But first, I'll tell you the story of my third grade class this year. Yep, it's back to teaching eight and nine-year-olds. Have you heard the saying, oh, what a tangled web we weave? Well, my story is about a little of that spidey power that I use to help my class weave together. Here's the story. Many of you know that I've been an elementary teacher for more than three decades, teaching every grade from one to five over the years. One of the soft yet crucial skills that experienced teachers develop over the years is what we call reading the room to see what students need in order to help students develop both academically and socially. And I've learned from the greatest colleagues by watching how they've made that that growth happen. Now, as a gray-haired old lady teacher myself, I consider it my duty and my pleasure to do the same for any younger colleague who might ask me about how to approach a particularly tricky situation. Earlier this winter, I noticed that two students in my room, who ordinarily had played very, very happily together, were showing outward signs that they were frustrated with each other at recess. Teachers and families alike can vouch for this pandemic's inevitable effect on the social skills and social practice of students, regardless of where they attended school or how old they were at the height of the pandemic. While we teachers have been working overtime to provide social emotional learning and support in these last few years, students actually also have been doing their part by working hard and practicing their own social skills. So one morning after this little rift became outwardly apparent to me, I made myself more available by sidling quietly over to one of the two students who was looking dejected. I commented on the weather and I asked her about her weekend. And then I said, you know, I'm surprised I don't see you playing with anonymous student today. 
I had to wipe my glasses when I saw you over here on the bench. And then I asked a curious question, which is the secret tool that every teacher has in his or her or their toolbox. So how are things going? The girl visibly inhaled and exhaled. I saw her get just a little teary, but then she gained her composure again. Mrs. Murphy, she intoned, I do like anonymous student, but lately I feel like she's a hold on tight kind of friend. Tell me more, I said, leaning in to show that I was listening to the sentences which were to come, even though I could predict them with 100% accuracy. My earnest student told me a familiar story. Girl meets girl and they become fast friends, exclusive friends, accidentally at first, but then proudly. After a while, one girl decides that she'd like to invite another girl into the mix, but the second girl wants the exclusive rights to their friendship and objects. Chaos ensues. Without a little teacher involvement, the curtain on the friendship might fall in a heap, leaving two unhappy actors with no more roles to play. I've seen this play begin many times before, and now I can recite the lines in my head. Well, I said, clearly you are a great friend. So great, in fact, that anonymous student doesn't want to lose you. And that's the good news. But let's discuss the bad news. I understand that you would like to play with others, but can you pretend to be an anonymous student for a moment? Can you put your feet in her sneakers and see how she might be seeing things? She has this wonderful friend who's her only friend. Can you see how she might feel if you say you want to play with another person too? My adorable student's eyebrows raised. I thought I saw one side of her mouth turn up into just a little smile for a moment. I think I have a plan to turn the bad news into more good news, I told her. I explained it to her in brief to let her know I wasn't going to ignore her situation and that I'd help her. For the next few weeks, during my regular class meeting, which is the name I give to our social competency learning time, I suggested that our class was ready for an amazing challenge. I challenged the class to see if they could widen their social circle. I explained that spiders have it right when they weave multiple silken strands together into a durable and beautiful web. If they only had one strand, they couldn't catch any flies, I quipped. Our class made a list of ways that we could get to know our class members even better. I challenged the class to play with someone completely new and different at our next recess. The class was kind enough to humor their teacher and invite students to play who ordinarily ran in different social circles. I took pictures of toothy grins playing with new friends and I shared them at our next meeting, praising their efforts. So in the next few weeks, we played finish the sentence games and I noticed the sentences that caused the class to all talk at once over the answerer. After every student had added on to one of those sentence starters, which they had drawn from a bowl, I pointed out those popular sentence starters, which they could use to start a conversation with a student who was new to them. So now you know how to start the conversation and you know it's gonna be a good one, I said. Try it out at recess and tell me how it works. Over the next few, several weeks, I reminded students of our goal which I have found as the surprising effect of making that goal float to the top of students' consciousness, as if it were their most critical goal, even if they might not have embraced the goal at first. Every few weeks, I gave students a privacy folder, much like the voting booths in our small New England towns, and an index card. Write the names of four or five students in this classroom with whom you're friendly enough to play or partner during work time, I urged. 
In the privacy of my empty classroom after school, I tallied the students who got a mention or two or four. Early on, I looked to see who didn't get a mention, and I made sure to buddy that student with another likely future friend for work projects, or I gave two students, including that one, a special errand or job. Sometimes when students got their index card and their voting booth, I asked for the names of three students with whom they felt like they would like to play or talk or they weren't still as familiar as their other classmates. After looking at each child's results, I changed the desks so that each student would be geographically near at least one person on their list, or I made sure they were science partners. In brief, I did what I saw my amazing, now-retired colleagues doing when I was a young green teacher. They watched students, took mental notes, and used that data to improve students' skills. They knew that a picture is worth a thousand words. A few weeks ago, as the first buds appeared on the trees on our back playground, I asked students to list four or five of their friends on the now familiar index card. When I tallied, I got confirmation of what I'd been seeing. Every student got a few mentions, at least. No students had a monopoly, however. The web had become strong. Toward the end of the school year, anonymous student was uncharacteristically absent. My original friend, bounded up to me on the playground and asked if that student was just going to be late or whether she would be absent all day. When I told her that I believed the absent student was sick and wouldn't be there all day, my friend exclaimed, oh, too bad. I smiled and I told her that I was so happy that she and anonymous student had forged a strong and flexible friendship, which couldn't be pulled apart. And I reminded her about the many other new friends that she had made. She gave me a little sideways grin, flipped her long brown hair, and zoomed across the playground to another girl. I watched them, feeling happy that my little plan had worked. The next day, when anonymous student returned, I watched again as they both held hands on their respective swings. It was a sweet sight. As teachers, we have more influence on students than we know, and we can use this influence to better our classroom connections and our students' social as well as academic learning. The book that I'll highlight today reminds me of that spider web, which was the image that served as my classroom teaching tool. This book was an eye-opener for me. Despite the fact that I have a BA in sociology, I was not so aware of the social psychology of how our own social networks are formed, how our place within these social networks affects both us and others, and how people we don't even know can affect our own thoughts, beliefs, and actions. So much for personal autonomy. But seriously, the featured book for this podcast is called Connected, How Your Friends, Friends, Friends Affect Everything You Think, Feel, and Do. It's written by Dr. Nicholas Christakis, who's the MD and the PhD kind of doctor, and Dr. James Fowler, who is the PhD kind of doctor. First, how about a mic drop? I bought this book on vacation more than a decade ago and then strangely buried it in my bookcase of Read This Soon books. Considering the title, I'm just going to blame my lack of follow-through on my friends, friends, friends. Perfect. When I did finally sit down and read the book, I was fascinated by the things that happen to us socially over which we have limited control and about which we're unaware. The book explains how forming social networks is an evolutionary advantage for humans. Early humans formed small groups with three degrees of separation. So that means they associated with their friends and family, who represent the first degree, their friends' friends, who represent the second degree, and their friends' friends' friends, 
who are the third degree of separation. It's part of our evolutionary biology to associate in groups, to make sure that the species survives. In groups, early humans, as well as humans throughout history, have been more successful in navigating their environment when they have others who help them to realize that, say, a predator is nearby or a threat is imminent. Early humans developed verbal language to help them to communicate about these dangers and created interpersonal bonds while trying to survive together as a small group. In addition, humans in groups employ both emotional mimicry and also the synchronization of emotions to help them survive. Let me share how these two important instincts have helped humans to beat the odds. These instincts have direct applications to our daily lives today, as well as important takeaways for those of us who spend our days in classrooms. If you've taken an introductory psychology course, you have no doubt learned already that the neurons in our brain fire when we use these pathways to accomplish a task or think a thought. There's one particular kind of neuron in the brain called mirror neurons. These special neurons help the brain to translate what the eyes see others do. In that translation, while we're merely observing others engaged in a particular activity, we are also using the actual neurons that would be required if we ourselves were actually doing that same activity. The authors of the book give an example of the baseball fans that you sometimes see at the games who self-animate as their sports heroes slide into first base or catch a pop fly, as if the fans themselves are actually playing right alongside the team. You also likely learned that newborn babies mimic the facial expressions of their parents, which is an inborn instinct to help them to perceive the world around them and to let these facial expressions serve as either a comfort or a warning to them when they're too young to save themselves from danger. They also serve to bond infant and parent, which is an evolutionary advantage, but we'll save this amazing instinct for another podcast. However, one thing you might not have covered in your intro to psych class is that when humans mimic the others in our proximity, we not only move our muscles to look as our near neighbors do, but we subsequently also feel the same emotions as the people within our social sphere. And that ability to imitate facial expressions and then transform our moods to match our close contacts is called affective afference or the facial feedback theory. What causes that change in emotion is actually the neurons firing as our muscles move, sending a message to our brain to feel a certain emotion. Just like a fire brigade, which moves water buckets from one person to another until it arrives to douse a fire, our own muscles tell the brain how to feel. But the muscles telling the brain how to feel really is the opposite of the usual process during which our brains send messages through our neurons to tell our muscles what to do, which affects how we feel. And then we're focused on other actions in these other instances, and those messages can travel in the opposite direction, and our emotions are affected by others instead of originating, originating in our own minds. Kind of wild, huh? This is one reason why servers are trained to smile when waiting tables, since it's been proven to create happier, better-tipping customers. The second human instinct, which has bearing on our lives and also potentially on our working lives, is the tendency of humans living in groups to synchronize their emotions. This sounds at first like that emotional mimicry that I just described, but synchronous emotions are perhaps one step away from the mimicking of someone's emotions at one point in time. Humans are wired 
to adopt emotional states of those around them for a few seconds, but these adopted emotional states also can last for weeks. The authors of Connected give us several fascinating examples. One study found that college freshmen who were assigned to live with a mildly depressed roommate were more likely to become dep depressed themselves during the semester in which the two students lived together. Another extreme example of emotional synchronicity occurred in Africa in what is now called Tanzania. On January 30, 1962, in a school in the, uh, the Bukoba district, three teen girls were sharing time together and they began laughing. Before long, more students at the school joined in the laughter. This laughter, however, became not joyful, but instead anxiety provoking in its nature. By the middle of March, 95 of the school's 195 students were overtaken by epidemic and uncontrollable laughter, and the school was forced to close and send its students home to their respective towns and villages. Not surprisingly, several towns experienced similar laughing outbreaks before this epidemic was, qu was quelled. Each new patient had been exposed to another affected person, and thus the laughter spread like a virus before the epidemic was over. While extreme, the mysterious laughing disease reminds us that people's moods are affected by the people with whom they are in contact. Moods are, in effect, contagious. Ideally, the contagion of moods serves to synchronize a whole group to better take care of their basic needs or to protect the group as a whole from danger. And this is why our emotional synchronicity is hardwired. Another fascinating part of this book was its detailed description of social webs or networks. The authors describe how we are still today influenced by our friends and family, their friends, and their friends' friends. This influence doesn't extend to the six degrees of separation noted in our modern larger global context, since we haven't yet lived in larger groups for long enough to cause an evolutionary shift to influencing people farther, farther than the third degree. The authors liken the emergent properties of these social networks to the baking of a cake. When the cake, or the social network, is considered as a whole, the whole isn't the average of its parts, and no one part of the whole is dominant. Humans' behavior and moods ripple through the social web, so people we've never met, our friends, 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 can actually influence our attitudes, feelings, and behaviors. And research even confirms that it influences our politics, our creativity, and the recommendations that we make to others. Despite our never having met them, who our friends and our friends' friends associate with has bearing on our own well-being since their behavior and moods affect the people we love and know. Maybe that's why our parents were so keen to know which friend group we were hanging out with in high school. We have the most influence on the people that we call our friends and family, the first degree of the social network, and they in turn influence us the most. As these effects move to the second and third degree of the network, they decrease accordingly. Think about how a friend leaving a party affects us far more directly than if our friend's friend leaves. This is because we break a direct tie in that social web instead of just loosening a much lesser tie. The authors remind us that just like the ripples in a pond when a stone is thrown into the water, our own effects are on others gradually diminish as they spread through the social network. However, our place in the network may determine how influential we are. If we're in the center of the social scene, we send more ripples than those on the social periphery. 
As the pandemic raged, some scientists even considered publicizing the vaccination of people that were popular enough to be in the middle of social networks to affect the greater good of the whole group by perhaps convincing others to get vaccinated. As I said, knowing about social networks has great applications in our jobs and perhaps on our very lives. So why exactly am I spending so much time explaining the ins and outs of human social groups and our basic psychology? How will this affect our day-to-day -day life? If we're teachers, how does this apply to the little social experiment that we love so much in our own classrooms? Well, glad you asked. Here are three big ideas from the books that have changed my own teaching practices. What we bring to work and what we find there can affect how much we like our job and how happy we are there. Not a surprise, frankly. However, if we're teachers, our moods can transfer to our students and theirs can also affect us. We are by nature little emotional magnets. But also our colleague down the hall, whom we don't know very well, can affect our students as well. And our colleagues associates can affect our students. We sink or swim together, but we aren't always aware of everyone in the pool. A second big idea that's influenced me is that it's important to think about who we connect with and choose them carefully since they can affect so much of what we think and do and even who we turn out to be. Editing our social contacts to maximize our chances of being happy, productive, and creative can turn out to be essential to our success. Our colleagues at work can affect our own relationships elsewhere. And the third one that's really affected me is that if we're teachers, we can positively affect our students in our classrooms and even the whole school culture by making choices which cause these attitudes, feelings, and actions, which encourage student and teacher success to flourish. So perhaps this is one reason why students' social-emotional lives need so much attention as we hopefully come out of the recent pandemic. We were apart for so long that there were very few people to affect us, but the people we were with in our very small social networks perhaps had an even greater effect on us, causing vastly different outcomes, both positive and negative, for different people. This is also why teachers are emotionally exhausted after a year of trying to mitigate some of the consequences of this great tear in our social webs. So if I piqued your interest about social webs, I hope so. Well, we've reached the part of each episode during which I offer you a new book recommendation. As usual, this book isn't necessarily a teacher book. It isn't a set of lessons or a curriculum. Instead, anyone, teacher or not, can read this book to improve their work and their personal lives in some way. The book I'll consider next time, with you along for the ride, is best-selling author Cal Newport's book, Deep Work. This book will hopefully make it so that you can zoom, from home from, zoom home from work at a reasonable hour by making clear the path to ultimate productivity. Does this sound too good to be true? Well, tune in next time to hear the strategies that Cal Newport has adopted, which have helped him to write several best-selling books write code and teach his students in his job as a university professor, and still leave the office by 5 p.m. to spend the evenings with his family. Well, I hope when you read it, you too will agree that this book is a keeper. I hope you've enjoyed the fourth episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share today. Thanks for spending your time with me. I hope that you'll think about how we're all connected and how our choices affect others and theirs affect us. Maybe that knowledge will help us not only to be better teachers, but to be better people too. We could use a lot more of that right about now.
So remember to pair up with a colleague or friend and discuss the ideas that you learned from my show, my book recommendations, and of course, share your own ideas about how we're all connected with each other. Join me for the next episode of Teacher Share when I focus on another aspect of learning, how we teachers can use our brains to focus and how we can maximize our own learning and productivity as adults, which has implications for our teaching. Since we all take our brains to work, I'm guessing this topic will be perfect for episode five. So did I cause your neurons to fire while you listen today? I sure hope so. We've all got some precious time on this planet. I wish you the best as you spend yours and join me next time for another episode of Think, Pair, Teacher, Share.